Hi there, and welcome to the Grief and Rebirth podcast. I'm your host, author and trauma survivor, Irene Weinberg, here to encourage you wherever you are in your healing journey. In each episode, I chat with incredible grief and trauma specialists, healers, mediums, and celebs, as well as remarkable people who have inspiring healing stories to share. If you're looking for a podcast that's both uplifting and inspiring, you've found it. Let us help you find your joy in life. Hi, everyone. I hope this finds each of you so very well. I'm speaking to you from my studio in West Orange, New Jersey, and I'm absolutely delighted to be welcoming Leanne Hull, who is an author, a motivational speaker, a presenter, an encourager, the co-affiliate leader of the remarkable nonprofit Helping Parents Heal group named Healing After Suicide, and an inspiring role model for grief to healing to rebirth. Leanne will be speaking to us today from Phoenix, Arizona. Leanne's book, titled How to Live When You Want to Die, tells the heartbreaking experience of losing her 16-year-old son to suicide in 2012. Andy was a great student, a star pitcher scouted by Major League Baseball teams on his way to becoming an Eagle Scout, and he was dearly loved by his friends. His suicide sent a piercing thunderbolt through the hearts of many thousands of people, his family, his friends, and his community. And it also became the driving force behind Leanne's purpose-driven conviction to spread love, inspiration, and encouragement in the midst of her profound grief. While raising their four kids, Leanne and her husband, Clay, owned and operated a construction company named Arizona Windows Center. Being self-employed allowed Leanne the time to invest in their children's lives and in the community in which they lived, which eventually led her to run for a seat in the United States Congress in 2010, which I think is awesome. After Andy transitioned, Leanne founded a nonprofit organization called Andy Hull's Sunshine Foundation whose mission is to raise awareness of the high rate of suicide while providing teens with coping skills to deal with life's challenges. With a You Matter approach, the foundation both honors Andy's legacy and saves lives by offering much-needed education, support, and encouragement. I'm looking forward to talking with Leanne about her book, How to Live When You Want to Die, being in the driver's seat on the journey of healing from grief, her nonprofit, Andy Hull's Sunshine Foundation, why we each have the responsibility to heal, and much more for what is surely going to be a very wise and very unforgettable interview. Hey, Leanne, a warm, heartfelt welcome. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, we're going to have such a great conversation. I mean, it's heartbreaking why you're here, but the way you have turned what happened, the lemon into lemonade with Andy Hull's Sunshine Foundation is absolutely amazing. And I really want to share that with our listeners. And in addition to how you became the victor, not the victim in your loss and all, which is awesome just by itself. So let's start with the first question so everybody can get to fall in love with Andy, to know about him and the way he took his life. 
So tell us about Andy, how he took his life and the value made, which scripted you as to how you were going to process all of this, the value made in the bathroom that night that he died. Andy was our fourth child. We were seasoned parents when he came along. So we had three older children. Andy was 11 years younger than our youngest child at that point in time. So he was a surprise and a blessing, such a gift. So he was easy, fun, goofy. He just added this spice and extra bit of sunshine to our lives. And that was his nickname was Sunshine. People called him that. He had this joie de vie about him. He just loved life. And we loved sharing it with him. Following him really is what we were doing, watching him in all of his activities. He kept us really busy. So just such a bright spot in our lives. And then that day, he was very involved. If you, Andy had other friends who you might say, I could have said, if there was a kid out there, I might pinpoint maybe this kid might be susceptible to suicide. Maybe one of Andy's other friends. But If you interviewed a hundred people would say, and there's no chance Andy would have ended his life. It was just not even a possibility. It wasn't on the radar screen. He wasn't depressed. He didn't struggle with mental illness. It was a moment and it was culminated by several different factors. And in the end, what it was determined, it was reported to the FDA that a prescription drug that he was taking for his acne was the cause of his suicide. It affected his frontal lobe, which is where your clear thinking is. And it affected his ability to process other normal struggles that teenagers go through and what we considered normal teenage angst. And at that moment, there were several different breakup of being bullied by a teacher, several different factors that just came together for that one perfect storm. And he wasn't able to process them And that was for him, it was, how can I stop the pain? And that was in his limited ability to think beyond that moment. That was his solution. He was only 16 years old. Teenagers are like that anyway, let alone something like that happening to affect him, his thinking processes and all. Yeah, a male brain is not fully developed until they're 30. So he was just having a lot. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, I wouldn't even go into that. So yes, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> uh, he was just a happy, wonderful, loving kid. And so when that day happened, fortunately, I had some great foundations, some great coping tools that we had built into our lives throughout our existence. And I was able to utilize those in that moment of crises because you can't really have a come to Jesus moment in a moment of crises. You have to have some skill set before that happens. And when I did finally manage to get up off the concrete, Andy ended his life in his bedroom at our house. So to come home to find the first responders at our house, very traumatic, the images in my head. We were at the neighbor's house waiting for all of the people to get done reporting and doing all the things that they do at a crime scene per se, but at an incident, not a crime scene, but at an incident. And I made my way into the bathroom for the very first time. Just when you look in the mirror sometimes to reconcile, are these things really happening to me? And that's what I was doing was looking at myself and reconciling that this was happening to me and not something I was reading in a newspaper and out 
popped out of my mouth two things that it wasn't something that anybody would expect and it wasn't something that I prepared, but I said, I will praise you in the storm and I'm not the first mom to lose a kid. And those two things paved my way forward because the one, I will praise you in the storm. I'm a woman of faith. And so I recognized that faith in that moment was going to require a decision and not an emotion. And so I was making a decision to be faithful. And then oftentimes when we experience something traumatic in our lives, we feel so isolated and we feel like we're the only ones going through it. And so for me to recognize that I wasn't the first mom, interestingly enough, the images that came through my head were of Holocaust survivors. And I grew up in a school surrounded by many Jewish people. So that information was very prevalent in my life. And I recognized their loss, which was even so much more tremendous than mine. So the gravity was so big. If they could survive that, I could survive this. And so I didn't feel alone in my suffering. It was a collectiveness of that was super important to me to understand that I was not alone. That's very evolved to take such an overview of what you were going through. And even though the pain was going to consume you to take such a higher perspective right from the get-go about it, it's really admirable that you did that. And in some ways, it probably saved your life a lot of times, right? Absolutely. And to be clear, when we're talking about it being admirable, I would tell you that was a divine download not something that was coming from me. It was my being open to receiving a divine download and being able to say the things that I knew were going to help heal my soul. Well, the very fact that you were open though, that's what I'm saying. That was so admirable because someone else, many other people would be completely closed down and unapproachable. And instead in that moment, you kind of expanded, which is amazing. So I love this story and please, because it's such a wonderful piece of who Andy was. Could you tell us about that day when the baseball scouts came from all over the country to watch him pitch? He was 16 years old, right? When this happened. And how did this help you to reroute those painful images in every way that you hear your story, you were able to reroute the images or think about ways to handle it or turn it into something good, even though it's very plain about what pain you were in, but it's so amazing that you kept striving to help yourself, to heal in some way, to move through it. So tell us about that beautiful, wonderful, glorious day. So I do want everybody to understand that's the reason the title of my book, How to Live When You Want to Die. I did want to die many times. So there's that, but also that will to live in us, at least in me, was much stronger and much greater than my desire at that moment to die. So that day, was it just occurred within a month before Andy passed. So it was very fresh and it was a momentous experience. It was at a great, huge complex where the Mariners play and we have our spring training. So this is a big, multiple stadiums all surrounded and it was a fabulous outing. And we look forward to it every year. It was called the Junior Classic. And they actually, as the scouts are watching, And they're going to pick the kids that they want to come and watch. And so Andy was on their radar. So he was there pitching. And you could see I was not in the stands because I couldn't just sit there. I was so nervous. And so I was pacing behind the stands 
so that Andy couldn't see me pacing because I didn't want him. I didn't want my nervousness to make him nervous. But you could see all of the scouts behind the backstand and backstop. And they had their radar guns on him and they were watching him. And he was in his element. He loved it. He just thrived on that. And he delivered. He just pitched lights out that time, just delivered the best pitching. And when he got done, I'll never forget that he literally looked like a gazelle leaping off the pitching mound. He didn't look like this studly man. He was so filled with joy at what he had just accomplished in the midst of all of this pressure that didn't seem to phase him. And he knew that he just delivered. His future was set. I knew his future was set. And it was so exciting as we walked out. And he's like, he's looking at all these bats and just in his element, wanted this new maple bat. And gosh, who am I to deny this kid? this $400 maple bat that he's probably going to break in the second game he plays with, but it was truly wonderful. And that was an image that I used. So to take you back to remember when I said that those images of when I got home and seeing the first responders at my house and the images in Andy's room, and then wrapping my arms around the body bag, of my kid Uh it's and laying on the body bag and just it's unbelievable and so we chose to stay in that house I went home that night because my daughter my grandkids were all living with me and that was our home and I knew that this was a defining moment are we going to run from this are we going to figure out how to go through it And so we went through it, but I knew I still had to manage a lot of the images and a lot of the trauma. And so every day when I came home, I would start to feel my stomach tighten and I'd get scared and all those images would start to run through my head as I'd pull down my driveway. And I thought, oh gosh, I can't live like this. And so I would literally tell myself, stop, because when you're telling your brain to do something, it has to stop. So stop commands it to stop. And it did, but that wasn't going to be enough. I had to fill it then with something to replace those images because then there's just this void and either the old images are going to come back or you're going to replace it with something new. So I picked that pitching scene because just like even telling the story now, it gives me goosebumps. It transforms me. It gives me a chemical reaction in my body. I think you get joy. You get joy, right? Yes. And so I figured I can count on this story 100% of the time having an effect on me. Once I said stop, I'd start to replay it maybe out loud. And I'd start to replay that vignette, maybe sitting in my truck or whatever. And by the time I finished talking about it, I had transformed my thought process from the body bag to the pitching mound. Now, that took me two years of practicing that before it became perfection. So I persisted in the process. It wasn't an immediate fix, but in two years, and it might not take two years for someone, you might be able to do something like that in a week. For me, it took two years. But when I finally reached that moment, when I recognized, oh my gosh, I can tell you the story. I could tell you details now. I won't because they'll impact you. They no longer impact me. I can picture myself around holding the body bag. And it doesn't impact me because I'm on the pitching mound. So I rerouted all those negative images so that they don't hold me captive anymore. They don't impact me. They're no longer traumatic. There's still that event, 
but I'm not triggered by it. It's amazing how persistent you are, Liam. You are one persistent lady. For two years, you drove to get this image so that when you would get that emotion and you would start going there, you trained yourself to be able to reroute that yourself to the other place. And it took you two years to do that. That's really amazing. That's tremendous. It's like going to the gym. And that's what I tell people. We would love to be able to go to the gym and walk out that day and be instantly transformed, but that's not how it happens. And so if it takes a process for our body, no doubt it's going to, our mind has to take that same process. It's the same workout and we have to persist at it if we want to change it. That's so wise. So let me ask you also, you've told us what happened to Andy. It was really a reaction to a prescription, but were there warning signs that everyone missed that maybe could have given anyone a heads up that something was going on with Andy, because maybe there are people, we hope not, but maybe there are people listening to this podcast who are missing some warning signs from their children. Yes. And it is a super popular prescription acne drug. So I'm not going to say its name, so I don't get in trouble, but I signed a waiver that said suicide, psychosis, and depression are possible side effects. But in my mind, when I signed that waiver, my kid is sunshine. That's who he is. He's happy. And I'm a good mom. I would know if there was something going on with Andy. So yes, it was very quick. It was like four months from start to finish. And the transition for four months, he was on that medication. Yes. So when he was testing that day, he was on that medication. Yes. And so there were things like he would say to me, mom, I can't remember how to because he was driving, how to go to the baseball field, how to get there. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, we've been driving there forever. And I just attributed that to normal teenage, get your head somewhere else. And he was struggling with a relationship issue, but his inability to process things, I would tell any parent out there to err on the side of caution. People oftentimes think that if I ask my child or my kid, my teenager, are you thinking about harming yourself? Are you thinking about suicide? That you're going to put those thoughts into their head. And that's not the case. It's kind of like when we talk about drugs and sex prevention and all of those things, we understand clearly that if we want to prevent it, we have to talk about it. The same thing with suicide. So don't just think that if your kid isn't depressed, Andy wasn't sitting in his room moody and wearing dark clothes and brooding around. It was a moment. There was a video he was watching and it was a very popular rap artist. And that video, and it's the detective that told me because he looked on his computer history and he had watched it moments before he ended his life. And so that video depicted exactly what he did that day. What that did in Andy's mind was it gave him permission to reenact that video. So I tell parents, if your kids tell you that you can't check their computer or check their phone, you paid the bill. It is your responsibility. You are not their friend. Invade their privacy. They get privacy when they're old enough to have it. I remember sitting in the high school auditorium for Andy's freshman year, and the message was, don't be a helicopter parent. And I tell everybody, you're the only one who will be. Be a helicopter parent. They've got no one else but you. Be your child's advocate in every way. In social media, you better be tweeting. 
if you're say you don't know how to tweet, but your kids are tweeting and Snapchatting, it is your responsibility to learn how to do it because that's the way you're going to know what they're thinking, what they're doing. And you have to know that. Had I known that, I thought Andy was watching cat videos. He loved watching cat videos, weirdly enough. If I had seen that video that he was watching, it would have scared the crap out of me. And that would have been a heads up for you because you probably would have connected when the doctor had you sign a waiver and you might have made that connection. And you also have a personal history of continuing losses. I mean, which is amazing. And you've been able to become a victor, not a victim while going through them, which tell us about, I mean, I use that word admirable again. Would you tell us about how you coped with all of this that's been pitched to your plate? I think the most important statement that I reiterate to myself anytime I experience something is instead of why not me, that has helped me a lot. Who am I to think that everybody else in the world should go through people in Ukraine, people in (sighs) India? I mean, the suffering in the world is so great. Who am I to think that I was going to be immune from that? And why not me? I'm definitely prepared to be an example for others of how to shine in the midst of darkness. I always used to say in the Bible, it said that it talked about David and that he was a man after God's heart. And I used to always say, I want to be remembered as a woman after God's heart. Well, that means that I have to display that not just in times of ease or fortune, but in the midst of trauma and tragedy. And maybe I feel like I'm being chosen for that. And that helps me is to feel like God chose me to be able to manage these things, to show and to help and to teach and to heal. It certainly feels like a sole purpose, especially with the foundation and all. I mean, this podcast, there's no doubt that this is a sole purpose for me. For both of us, they come from profound loss and sadness, but this is how we heal and we make something good out of it. To help others. I mean, it was Andy and then my mom. I'm an only child and with an only parent. So my mom passed three years after Andy. And then my husband of 40 years, just two years ago. And then my son-in-law, it'll be a year this December, he died from COVID. And in the midst of all that, my two other boys, their wives of 10 years left because it paid suicide. It took a toll on my family. And so I lost two daughter-in-laws, not by death, but by divorce. It has wreaked havoc in our lives. Wow. And it still has. It's impacted. But still, it's amazing. What would you say is the difference between grieving and being sad? I would say that grief is a state of being. Grief is like this huge umbrella. And at some point in time, you've got to shift the umbrella off and understand So many people are afraid to let go of the grief because they associate it with, if I let go of the grief, I'm going to let go of my loved one. And so to be able to shed that grief umbrella and then recognize you're going to have moments of sadness. I tell people I'm no longer grieving. Do I get sad? You bet. Are there moments that trigger me? Absolutely. Are there times like the Andy's angel anniversary or his birthday or my husband's or the holidays? Yes, those are more difficult to navigate. But if I just continue to stay in this umbrella of grief, it's too heavy. I wanted it gone so that the sun could come back into my lives. 
and then the clouds can come and go. But with an umbrella of grief over you, there's nothing else but that darkness. It's weighing you down all the time. I mean, it's wonderful that you separate out because I find the same thing. For me, I mean, our those listening to us know my story. This is the month my husband died in the car accident. And I get triggered every year. I'll suddenly start feeling really sad. And I'm like, why am I feeling like this? I'm fine. And then I remember, oh, this is the month leading up to the accident. And it happens to me every single year. So just like what you're saying, you can be going, everything's good. And all of a sudden your body remembers, your cells remember. So many of our current therapists and people like that, they want to tell you that you are going to grieve forever. And I hear from so many parents who say, it's never going to get better. And you know what? If you say it, you're right. What is it? Henry Ford said, if you think you can or you think you can't, you are correct. So there you have it. The more you keep saying it'll never get better, you're right. It'll never get better. That's right. You script yourself. I made that decision early on that I was going to heal. It's so interesting. So I'm going to add one more piece of mind. When they pulled me out of the car, aside from that message I got from the other side, in my head, you had your mirror. In my head, I'm going to get through this one way or another. My husband was buried on my son's 21st birthday. I have to show my son that you can get hit by a grenade in life and come out the other end of it. And my son has said to me, Mom, there's been nothing worse than seeing you in despair and nothing better than seeing you be able to have joy again. Just like you. I think you call people, we're resilient. And even the worst thing in the world, you were right away, you were setting your foot forward, even though you were going to take 14 steps backwards at times. And I did the But we did the work. It didn't just happen. So, I mean, I read 80 books that first year. Me too. I did everything and anything I could do. I was working to be my best advocate. So while, yes, we are resilient, we still did did the work. work. I mean, I went to counseling. I saw healers and all that. Yes, absolutely. Leanne, I love when you talk about how a person can be in the driver's seat on the journey of healing from grief, which is just exactly what you and I are talking about. You want to talk a little more to that? For those sure. who are listening. When I work with other people or mentor other parents, obviously this is my natural personality. It is my natural tendency to have always wanted to be in the driver's seat. I like control. So this would be my natural process of handling a traumatic event is how can I be in the driver's seat here? I did not want to be in the passenger seat, a passenger through my own journey. And it was super important to me that, like you said, to show up for your other son. For me, I didn't want Andy's life to be defined by how he passed. And that meant it was up to me to continue his legacy by showing his sunshine, not his suicide. And that was my goal going forward. How can I best honor him? And my kids and my grandkids absolutely did not deserve a broken grandma or broken mom. And that, again, was up to me to give them the best version of myself that I could be. That's exactly what I did. We have so much in common that way. I loved your book. I read the book. I mean, it's a wonderful book, and I encourage everyone to read it. Tell us what inspired you to write it. And how is it a roadmap, which I know because I read it, but let's explain to everyone listening how it is a roadmap for those suffering from the passing of a loved one, because that's basically what you provide is a roadmap to help people get through. 
a profound loss. The, the writing of it began, it wasn't like I just decided one day I was going to write a book. I just started writing and it just went from there. And it was interesting. It took me three years to write the book. I had to make myself available. So it wasn't like I was thinking up these things and then I'd go sit and write. I would set the time and I'd sit down to write. And then again, I felt like I was getting a divine download. And this was what was coming out. I wanted to capture the process. I wanted to give people hope and I wanted to be real about it. I wanted them to understand that when people say, you don't know how I feel, let me tell you, I do. And I never had thought about suicide until Andy passed. And then to walk up to that moment myself, to plan it, to think about it, to be at that intersection, and then to realize I could make a different choice. But I understood that feeling was there. And then I had to use some cognitive abilities to decide what I was going to do about those emotions. I wanted people to understand that they could do that too. Wanted to give them some roadmap. Absolutely. I think that one of the things you tell that you help people to know is they can have a choice. Don't believe everything you think. Right. And of course, let's do our exception to the rule that there are people with mental illnesses or whatever that obviously would not be a choice. But for so many of us, when I speak to the kids, when I deliver presentations, I start out by telling them, everybody in your life is focused on your success, your teachers, your parents. I'm here to tell you how essential your failures are because they will give you the building blocks to continue to know that you can survive. When you survive a breakup, when you survive a failed grade or whatever that feels like the end of the world for you, be prepared and understand you're going to have failures in life. They are a part of life. They're normal. They're expected. Embrace them, fix them, and go forward. That's fantastic. I would, I would like to get that on a plaque somewhere or on a billboard. <laughs> That's fantastic. So you've received a lot of spiritual signs from Andy. I have. They're oh, very- entertain us. Tell us some of them because I love hearing about the signs. Often they're very creative over there. I think for me, the best one that I received, I drove Andy's truck until my husband passed and now I drive his truck, but I drove Andy's truck and he wanted these for his 16th birthday, I bought these custom rims for his truck. He'd picked them out. He loved them. His tires were jacked up. I mean, the truck is great. It's beautiful. The rims are beautiful. And so when I was taking one of my kids to the airport, a mishap happened and I had to drop him off at the airport. And when I went back to hurry to get something. They'd left their wallet back at the house. It was dark. It was early in the morning and I missed the curb and I hit the curb really hard, really hard. It blew the tire and it cracked the rim, Andy's rim. And so long story short, as I'm waiting there for the tow truck to come, I'm just devastated. And so the tow truck is towing it away. I'm in another truck and I stop at a convenience store. I go into the restroom and I'm sitting in there and I'm just crying. I'm devastated because I knew that Andy's rim had been cracked. And I pull out the toilet paper and it has those cover over the toilet paper. And as I pull out the toilet paper, a penny drops and pennies are my sign from Andy. And I'm like, in this bathroom covered toilet paper, a penny drops. And I was like, okay, it's going to be okay, mom. And that's beautiful. Just such a wonderful confirmation that he was there and he's like, 
I could just hear it, mom. It's okay. Mom, you're okay. That's what matters to me, mom. You're okay. These signs, and you've received others too, I know. Yes. And they're very transformative, aren't they, when you get them? Because they reassure you. They do. I needed to know, without a doubt, my faith really prohibited me from seeking a medium. I mean, from everything that I grew up with, I knew I was going to go to hell if I saw a medium. And so after Andy passed, though, I knew he was in heaven, but I wanted to know what that was like. What's my kid doing? And I wanted to know more. So I had some friends recommend a medium and I snuck away to see her. I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell my husband, nobody. And so when I went in there to see her, the last thing that she said, without a doubt, I knew I was talking to my kid, without a doubt. And Andy said at the end of that first session, it was like 40 days after he'd passed, he said, my mom's tough as nails. She's going to be fine. And I walked out of there and I knew I was going to live every day to prove that kid right. Make sure that he, that the world would see that I was going to be okay. And not only that, you're so okay. You're helping so many other people. You're but helping other people to be okay. What media a, made a difference for me, for sure. For sure. What a blessing. And in fact, going back to that session with the medium, wasn't that session what inspires you to create the foundation or was that part or did that come along a little ways later? Got that you matter approach also. How did that? The session with the medium connected me with helping parents heal. So that's, she said, oh, I know a group that's just recently started and it's here locally. And she said, you need to contact her. And so I did. And that working with Helping Parents Heal was the such a pivotal point, such a, a continuing affirmation of my growth and healing and moving forward and connection to the spiritual realm and shedding so many layers of indoctrination. That really didn't impact the starting the foundation. It was Andy's birthday was four months after he passed. And I wanted some way to commemorate, to honor that day. And so we had this big event. And we raised $10,000 at this event. And I was like, shoot, now what are we going to do? And so we decided to do scholarships at his school. And that is what led then to the developing. And we had to deliver a message. And I wanted all of the kids to know how much they mattered. They needed to hear that. There was a young woman in the audience. I spoke at Andy's school four months after he passed to 3,000 kids. That principal was a brave man to put me in front of all those kids, but he knew that I could deliver a life-affirming message. And so I delivered that message to the kids and I got an email from a young woman a couple months afterwards. And she said, you don't know me, but I was sitting in that audience. And she said, I heard you tell me that I mattered. And she said, I'd been harming myself. And I had the courage that day to go home and tell my mom that I needed help. She said, you saved my life. Oh my God. What a beautiful thing. I would never in 3000 kids. She heard that personal message that she mattered. And that actually, and with your sadness and your grief and all that, it's like a sap for your soul. Yes, totally. It gives you a purpose. It helped to solidify that. Would I give anything to have my kid back? You bet, but I can't. And so what can I do with it? How can I transform myself? And like you said, healing the world, because it begins with us. We have to be okay in order 
to spread that and make a difference in the world. We can't just sit behind the keyboard and say naughty things. No, you're a role model for people and they're paying attention to what you have to say. It's amazing. And speaking of that, you talked about that you tell people that you tell kids that they matter, that you tell kids that it's really what they're doing is really important, that they don't have to work in a vacuum. But what else do you advise kids? How else do you advise them? Like a kid has something going really wrong in their lives. I heard you say that you will say to them, well, it's good that you have things going wrong because that's how you learn to prepare yourself. And that's how you learn to go through life. Are there other things that you say when you're counseling kids to help them to cope when things are not going well in their lives? Something that I think is super important in that is I have a support system around myself. So there are people that are watching me and always looking out for me. And I've set that up so that when I do fall, I know I have people that are going to lift me up. I tell the kids, put the friend before the friendship. So if you have a friend that is articulating self-harm, you have to not worry about them getting mad at you if you tell an adult You may lose their friendship, but better to lose their friendship than the friend. So if you know someone who's talking about self-harming, you have to tell an adult. You have to tell someone else who's qualified. Okay, I do this work. I have people that call me and tell me their kid or this person is thinking about self-harm. I am not a therapist. I'm not qualified to help you. Now, can I help you and guide you and direct you to get help and make sure that you go get help? You bet. I've called 911 on people who I'm talking to on the phone or who I'm communicating with on social media and what they're saying, either verbally or digitally, is harmful. I don't hesitate. I call 911. So there is the pound 988 number now, which is nationwide. I try not to minimize anything anybody's feeling. So while it might not seem significant to me, Nobody would have thought that of Andy either. And so you have to err on the side of caution and take that extra step as a parent, as a friend. And if you're sitting in front of me and you're telling me you're thinking about self-harming, then we're going to continue our conversation until we have a plan. What's the next step for you? That's fantastic. How many kids have you helped? Do you have any idea? I know you do many presentations now, right? I do. I have folders full of letters of people from all over the world. We ship our- How long have you been doing this? 10 years. Look at what you've accomplished. We ship our You Matter wristbands all over the world, free of charge. I love the ones where we get, we shipped 18,000 to a school district in New York recently. I love that. That's powerful. But then I got one where a mom emailed me and she said, my son was given a You Matter wristband on Daytona Beach during spring break three years ago, and he hasn't taken it off one day and it just broke. Could I please have one more? It would mean so much to him. How amazing is that? Who knows who gave him that wristband on Daytona Beach during spring break? And it's just because you just hand them out without thought of- But it impacted his life. You don't know who you're impacting that way. It's a beautiful thing. We just want to know we matter. All of us do. True. Part of what's wrong with so many people, I think, is they never realized how much they do matter. We have a purpose. Leanne, why is healing not only important for each of us individually, but essential for all of humanity? I love that you speak to that. 
if one person gets healing, they're in pain and they do what they need to do to heal. How does that impact not only themselves, but you're saying it impacts everyone, the collective. I would never in the past, before Andy passed, I would have told you that my impact was on, okay, so if I'm sitting here having a conversation with you, then maybe I can have an impact, but I see it bigger now. So my healing allows this energy, this God force to come into me. And so that's a power that's way beyond my own little power. And if I'm allowing this power to come in through me, then I can also allow it to go out. So I have this huge capacity. Whenever I'm bringing in this God light, I'm sending it out to my family first, my kids, my grandkids. I'm sending it out for healing for them. And then I'm expanding it to our neighborhood, to friends and family, and we can send it out to the world. We have an amazing ability to direct, if we're allowing this flow of power and energy through us, to send it out. We can heal the world if we'll work on ourselves. That's beautiful and so wise. And now it wants to connect with the Andy Hull Sunshine Foundation. So tell us all about that. And do you have a special offer for our podcast audience? So it's super easy. It's andyssunshine.com, but it has two S's in the middle. So Andy's Sunshine. I mean, if you get close to that, it'll pop up on your Google. And we've Googled enough, I guess, that it just pops up. And so you can find us there. You can find me, Leanne Hull, on Facebook. You can find Andy Hull Sunshine Foundation on Facebook. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram. It's on Twitter. It's Leanne at You Matter. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm visible. So those are great ways. Go to our website. You can watch so many of the videos, the things that we've done. You can listen to my presentations. You can request wristbands. So our wristbands are free. The shipping is free. We don't charge shipping, nothing. We'll ship you as many wristbands as you want. One, 10,000. Fill out the form. I would love to ship them to you. And then we have a Camp You Matter. And so I would love to give away a Camp You Matter. And it is actually been reviewed by Johns Hopkins. It's a 15-week curriculum. It's been used as an after-school program. It's designed for third to sixth graders. It's an outdoor wilderness program in the indoor classroom setting. So it's designed to take you on a wilderness journey where you can explore your potential, your self-worth, your you matter. And it's a wonderful program. It's worth, it's designed for 20 students. So the kit comes with lots and lots of supplies, compass, flashlights, all kinds of stuff, things to put on your wall to create that environment for a camp setting. I would love to give one of those away. I'll ship it to you anywhere in the U.S. that would like one for their school, their class. That's a $1,500 value, and we will train you. It's self-guided. Anybody can do it as long as you're motivated and think of yourself as a wilderness instructor, a camp counselor. Yeah, so I'm really excited to be able to give that away. Talk about passing it forward. Wow. And Leanne Hall, what is your important tip for finding joy in life? Gosh, I want it, Irene. I want it. I used to always say I wanted the e-ticket ride at Disneyland, that full experience. And I still say it. I want more. And when you say you want more, 
you have to be prepared to have it all. You can't have joy without sorrow. And I want all of the experiences, just being open to the full experience and being willing to say, get up tomorrow morning, put yourself out there and say, I want more. I'm worth more. That's beautiful. Leanne, through your book, How to Live When You Want to Die, you inspire others to embark on their own journeys of healing and hope. Thank you for showing through your own personal life experience that it is possible to lead a purposeful and joyful life once again after the passing of a beloved child, for inspiring teens to deal with their life challenges by imparting your important new matter message. And I thank you from my heart for this very wise and unforgettable interview. And here's a loving reminder, everyone, that you can see the show notes and all grief and rebirth podcast episodes on IreneWeinberg.com. And make sure to follow us and like us on social at Irene S. Weinberg on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And if you're watching here on YouTube, be sure to click subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Like I like to say, to be continued. Many blessings. Bye for now. And thank you. Thank you, Leanne.